Hi, I'm Colin Davin. This is All Strings Considered. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Scott Wolf. This year celebrates what would be Benjamin Britten's 100th birthday. Benjamin Britten wrote a single work for the solo guitar, The Nocturnal, which has become one of the most important pieces in the 20th century repertoire for our instrument. He wrote The Nocturnal for one of the most important guitarists of the 20th century, Julian Bream, who is celebrating his 80th birthday this year and was just awarded the Gramophone Lifetime Achievement Award. In this episode, I have my friend Colin Davin here, primarily to talk to us about his long-standing relationship with that piece. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You'll hear some exclusive live excerpts from his new project with singer Esteli Gomez and about their collaboration with the 2013 Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Caroline Shaw. If that's not already enough, he'll also give us guitarists some excellent tips on sight reading, his unique impressions of being the youngest finalist in the GFA competition, and you'll hear about a job opening in a place that I can almost guarantee isn't on your normal job search radar, Afghanistan. But before I tell you more, I think in this case, the best way to introduce Colin is through his playing. Hearing Colin for the first time, he opened his concert with Merz's Hungarian Fantasy. And within the short time of those first few dramatic opening chords, I was pretty much sold. His recently released WCD, The Infinite Fabric of Dreams, also opens with this piece. So it seems fitting that I introduce you to him the same way.
like being the youngest person to get into the finals of the GFA? Oh, yeah. So that was um, 2005, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd entered the GFA in Montreal in 2004 uh, when I was 17, just sort of to give it a shot. And I made the semifinals that year, and that was sort of a surprise. At the time, there was no youth oh, competition. There wasn't. At the time, it was just the international competition, yeah. Yeah, so, so I took a shot at it and made it to the semifinals and thought, well, you know, anything else is icing. And uh, I didn't make the finals that year, nor did I really expect to. I had, I, I think I'd entered two small competitions before that, one of which was a competition based in the state of Ohio the Ohio High School Orchestra Teachers Association competition or something. I was the only guitarist, so I won because I had, you know, it was just like, you know, first, second, and third prize goes to me. So you're the only one for the guitar division. I was the only one for the guitar division, yes. (laughs) Uh, So that doesn't really qualify as pressure cooker competition experience. Uh Um, So I came back the next year to the GFA, which was in um, Oberlin, Ohio, which is about 40 minutes from where I grew up. And... Uh, made the finals that year and it was something that I, I knew going into it was a possibility. I had a sense from that experience in Montreal what the level of a finalist was supposed to be and and how how close I was to it and what I needed to do differently in terms of choosing repertoire that would be more impressive in a competition setting and that year I believe I did I did summer all of the Casanova Tedesco Sonata uh-huh. Was that the um, set? That was not the set piece. Oh. No, the... Oh, I wonder if I can even remember. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty... It was pretty uh, ner- nerve-wracking and exhilarating. And who, who won that year? I think Jerome Ducharme won the competition that year, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being the youngest guy up there by, by, you know, by a fair bit. I think I was definitely the only one who was not of drinking age. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's super exciting to be up on that stage and it was a real honor to to be in a place where sort of the entire guitar community got to hear yeah. uh, what I was doing and you know I've changed a lot since then and my, my repertoire has changed and my technique has developed more and my musicianship is different and mm-hmm. um, but I think you know there's still remnants of that experience people still occasionally will say oh, I heard you play in the finals of GFA in 2006 or 2005 yeah. um, been a while since I've done a competition. It's the more that I entered competitions, I had sort of a, a good run where I, I won a handful and several in a row that I entered, I, I won, um, which was great and you know it was good experience. And again, people getting to hear you. At a certain point, it does become the same people getting to hear you, and quite frankly, the same people trading for second and third prize. That you know, there's sort of a, a group that travels around. And I'm sure that group's changed by now. Trends. Yeah, it has yeah. trends and it has a little bit of redundancy and and it's a li- it's a little bit of an artificial setting. You know, when I play a, a recital somewhere, I feel like people come to the recital and they want to hear me play well and and hear something beautiful and exciting and you know they they want to be moved and entertained. Mm-hmm. And at a competition, there's there's a little bit of a a sadistic element to it and uh, whether or not anyone's counting how many notes you miss you get the sense that they might be they might be checking your tempo with the metronome they brought uh, and see who plays that scale faster and to the extent that that's just your imagination when you're up there and competing or some elements of the reality of it it does uh, change the experience of how you approach performing Mm -hmm. Um, I did my best to pretends that I was giving a recital when I competed, but there's some bug in the back of your mind saying, you're being it's judged. Yeah. yeah, you're 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 having points deducted as you go. With the Britain 100th anniversary coming up, I've been trying to think of a way to honor that Britain is one of my favorite composers in general, and that he also has written one of the major solo guitar works is a great bonus for me. I'd been looking for a while for the right project to do that, and I've done a lot of work with composers, living young composers, and I'd thought of maybe formulating a solo program that had pieces that had drawn influence from Britain, and then having the Britain solo piece as well. 
and it became apparent at a certain point it was going to be tough to get enough existing pieces combined with new commissions and the logistics of it were it was getting under the gun it was late 2012 and i was running out of time for the centennial and it was around that time that i met a soprano named esteli gomez who sings in a group called Roomful of teeth and i met her through another member of that group caroline shaw who's also a composer that i have admired very much and it suddenly dawned on me that esteli was this has this sort of amazing sensitive clear voice and specializes in early and new music mm. and i thought well this britain is based on a, an old renaissance song by dowlands and i've got this singer here and you know we seem to be getting along and we have this mutual friend who's a composer this could work out very nicely within about a, a week of meeting each other we were all already planning the concert that was this past october and so the program that we have come up with and we'll be premiering it october 17th in new york is the britain songs from the chinese the solo guitar piece by britain the nocturnal um, and esteli will actually then sing the dowlin song at the end rather than me playing it as a solo piece and uh, several songs by Dowland, and then a new commission from from Caroline Shaw that is also based on Dowland. It's sort of, while while making it clear what the program was about, I didn't really want to tell her, oh, you know, could you write a piece that's based on the Britain Nocturnal or, you know, tell her what material to use. Uh -huh. And so the way she f fitted into the program was sort of doing to Dowland what Britain did to Dowland, but with her own voice. And so she based her song for voice and guitar on Dallin's Come Again. Which also appears in our program. Um, so we'll have the original of Come Again and then Caroline Shaw's transformation of it. And sometime between this project being agreed on and this project happening, a nice little thing happened, which is that Caroline won the Pulitzer Prize for music, and she's the youngest person to do so. And so now we're very excited we get to play the first new premiere from her since she won that prize. So Colin and Esteli did that premiere just a week or two ago, and Colin was able to send me a couple excerpts of that first playing of this new work by Carolyn Shaw, titled Come Again, Again. Colin sent me the following note about the piece. Shaw transforms Dowland's song into a unique piece that is at once exquisite and unsettling, intimate and troubled. All of the verses in Dowland's song are reset by Shaw, sometimes resetting the original melody within an altered accompaniment, a little bit like the excerpt you're about to hear, and at other times fragmenting the melody like light shining through a prism. To hear, to touch, to kiss, to know. 
I've had in the past year two opportunities to travel to Kabul, Afghanistan um, and guest teach at the Afghanistan National Institute of Music. Came about through a connection with a colleague of mine from Juilliard who was teaching there at the time and was sort of organizing guest artists to, to come in for their winter music academy. It's a fascinating school. You know, Afghanistan for a long time didn't have music, essentially. Taliban rule forbid the performance or listening to of music. Yeah, and I mean, it's been a complicated issue in Afghanistan for, for years. You know, under the Soviet Union, music was around quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we know from the stories of Soviet composers, it was often you were co-opted into a certain agenda musically. And, and, that, and that was happening to a point in Afghanistan as well during Soviet occupation. When the Mujahideen started their rebellion, there were a lot of incredibly conservative fundamentalist Muslim forces involved in that movement. And various sects of the Mujahideen would be more liberal or conservative than others. And there was this nebulous period where it was unclear who was in charge of the country and different small groups would be in power for a very short period of time, but no one ever really established a government. And so there was a lot of fear at that time for artists and musicians, and some of them started trickling out of the country or sometimes being imprisoned or maybe even killed because it was seen as immoral to play music. And finally, a government did establish itself in Afghanistan and uh, an attempt to restore stability politically came out, but it was the Taliban who were among the more reactionary of those groups. And then it became official that music was not gonna be around in Afghanistan. And so the largest community of Afghan musicians for a while was living in Peshawar, Pakistan. Basically, everyone had to go into exile or change their career. With the US-led war in Afghanistan, which continues on to this day, things did open up more and the establishment of a new democratically elected government, which has its problems, of course, but it is a much more open society now than it was under the Taliban. So now we have the opportunity for a place like the Afghanistan National Institute of Music. It's this extraordinary school which teaches both the Western classical tradition and Afghan Indian music. Those two countries' traditional musics are very closely connected. And so students might be studying the sitar or the rubab, or they might be studying classical guitar or violin or cello. Mm -hmm. You know, another significant element to it is that there are girls at the school. About 30% of the students are girls which is huge in a country where women's education was not permitted for a long time and is still just slowly becoming something that's possible again. Mm -hmm. And certainly women playing musical instruments, heaven forbid, on stage is a pretty radical development. So I was very fortunate to, to get to go over there and teach for a couple of weeks at a time. Getting instruments is one of the more complicated issues they have. Shipping things to Afghanistan is really hard, especially for Western instruments, it's hard to get them there. So my second trip, I, I did a, a crowdfunding campaign online to raise money for a new instrument and for supplies and uh, sheet music. They, they had nothing approaching a, a good intermediate level guitar. Their best instruments were sort of of the $150 Yamaha breed. And so I was able to, to donate an instrument and you know, the easiest way to get it there is to carry it there yourself. So, so that's, that's what I did. And another challenge they face is just uh, recruiting faculty. Right now they have someone teaching classical guitar full-time, but he's, he's a trumpet player who plays a little, plays plays a little, a little guitar. guitar. He's a great man and he's, he's doing the best he can, but they're needing pretty badly to import a classical guitar teacher. You know, the circumstances of my life don't allow me to be that person right now. What was it like? Fascinating. You know, it's obviously an entirely different society and culture than, than what we're used to here in the States. Mm -hmm. It's a bustling, busy city. It's really crowded. There's traffic every day. You mostly take cars. As a foreigner, you want to sort of downplay your presence a little bit. So being inside a car is generally safer. If you're there for a while, you do get a sense of where it's safe for a foreigner to walk around. In certain neighborhoods, you just wouldn't want to do that. Uh -huh. And certain areas, you could. So sometimes I walked around. The 
places that I stayed while I was there were sort of on the other side of town from the school. So the school employs uh, drivers on mm-hmm. so that when guests come, we have a, a free ride um, across town. I think the, the two things that struck me most there were, one was, you know, what's it going to be like to be in a country which is technically still in a state of war? And, you know, essentially people don't seem like they're on high alert. People are living normal daily lives. They're going shopping. They're increasingly going to school, thankfully. And they're working and moving about town. And sure, every once in a while there's an attack. But you get the same sense, you know, when I was at USC and living in Los Angeles, you hear these horror stories in the news about gang violence. And it's a real problem. But it doesn't affect most people on a regular basis. It's horrible if it happens, but, you know, you can also get in a car accident or there are lots of ways to to find yourself in physical danger. And that's the sense you get over there is, well, there are Taliban who are, you know, occasionally going to blow something up. God forbid that you get stuck in that place at that moment, but it's a really big city Um, and chances are you're not going to be in that place. Both trips I made out there, there were attacks in Kabul while I was there. Nothing that was very close to where I was, and I only heard about it after the fact. I did wake up one morning to the alarm, and I found out later from an American who is teaching full-time at the school. No, they they pretty much set off the alarm anytime anything happens anywhere. Because it's the International Military Headquarters, they put on the ducking cover no matter what, if there's a bombing somewhere in Kabul. Um, And in this case, it was near the airport, and that's several miles away from where I was, and that's fine. I got woken up earlier than I wanted to, but but otherwise it was fine. But the other thing that was most striking about being there, you know, it was easily the most gratifying teaching experience I've had. Not because, you know, I'm going over there and giving these poor war-torn children this great opportunity to learn music, but just because of their enthusiasm and intelligence and you know desire to work and improve and so you know you also get a range of levels of playing ability and sort of also learning capacity and sort of how quickly they pick things up or the complexity that they're capable of getting at diff- and then for they different ideas there is a little bit of a language barrier too. The older students, they do have English classes at the school. It's an academic as well as a musical school. So the older students speak English well enough that I can verbally express what I need to. And I learned just enough Dari to be able to count a piece off or something. Yeah. But to say, chat one, two, three, four. Um, <laughs> or tell them that that was beautiful or that was not so good. Less than a phrase book's worth of linguistic ability there. I would speak at them in English, uh, the younger kids who didn't have much or any English. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to explain it verbally just so I knew what I was saying. <laughs> they would sort of stare at me, but they're like, okay, I don't have any idea what this guy is saying, but I think I know what he's playing. Mm-hmm. And I can see what he's pointing to with it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they really are invested in getting it. The focus is really there. and. And that was the thing is that in you know a week and a half my first time there and two weeks my second time there, I mean, I think every student was developing quickly and you could see a noticeable improvement. And that was so fulfilling to, to have students that really cared and um, were becoming technically and musically better that quickly. I hope that they can find that teacher that can be there on a more full-time basis. And I think that teacher is going to be very, very fulfilled. That's an amazing place to be. Well, if, if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking, that sounds fascinating, I'd love to go. I mean, they're actively taking applications right now, for one. Uh-huh. Um, there is also the opportunity possibly to go as a guest artist and sort of take a test run. The Winter Academy is the best time for that when they bring in lots of guest artists. Well, you can contact um, the school through um, Allegra Bogus would probably be the person to to look up, or you could find my email address on my website. And uh, so it's Colin Davin at gmail.com. Uh, just my name, all one word. And you know, if this is something that's interesting, you know, I can certainly begin a conversation at the very least. They're definitely looking for someone, and it's also Afghanistan is is uh, it's a hospitality culture. Mm. Um, they are incredibly welcoming and gracious to guests who come in. You know, I, I, ha- I have an entire 
uh, formal Afghan wardrobe right now because I got <laughs> received gifts for just being there. Um, I haven't gotten up the gall to wear to it, wear it. <laughs> in, in public just yet. <laughs> Did you wear it there? Um, I wore I wore an Afghan hat while I was over there, and sometimes I wear I have a pakol, which is sort of the warm wool hats that every man wears seems to wear over there, and I'll I'll, I'll wear it in the states in the winter. It's my warm yeah. it's my warmest hat. New York's cold, so <laughs> there are also some that are more resemble like a skull cap. My skull cap is both uh, quite glittery and brightly colored, and <laughs> maybe a it's a little more flamboyant than my usual style. So I always love to have some little lesson, something you can give to listeners that kind of help them in their own playing. Sure. And I remember you being a phenomenal sight reader. I had some advantages coming into, through, through my like younger development as a musician in terms of sight reading, in that I was playing a few different instruments growing up. I played bassoon, flute, saxophone, guitar. And so I was reading different clefts and often I was playing melodic instruments, and so I got a good sense of seeing across the page horizontally. And I think it's it's really good to practice sight reading also in a way where as you become more familiar with the fretboard, that you can start to recognize not only where a note is placed, but where a combination of notes is placed and understanding the shape of your hands and the different possibilities of where that shape could end up. So here's a little exercise you can do. Starting off rather than with chords, we'll start with a short melody, C, D, E, F. All right, here we go. You know, recognizing the entire fretboard's worth of possibilities is something that becomes important. So when you see an individual note, let's say it's a C, you know, you can play it here on the second string, or on the third string, or on the fourth or radically on the fifth. I run out of room on the sixth. But knowing as you go through a piece of music, well, okay, so there's a C, and the context of what else I have to play suggests that, you know, that one, I, okay, actually that one's probably gonna be on the third string because of this other thing. I, you know, I have to play a high B right around it. So that's where that C's gonna need to go. And then furthermore, you sort of then have to understand that in terms of combinations of notes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, C, D, E, F, you know, also where we play them and how we manipulate that can get different timbral effects. Uh -huh. So a most straightforward version in the first position sounds something like that. Uh, all on one string, maybe all on the third string. Can be, you know, very sort of supely expressive, Segovia-like. Yeah. Um, or a campanella fingering, right, that can create a totally different effects where they're all on a different string. So that was C on the fourth string, D on the third string, the open first string, and F on the second string. I often have my students play a sort of game where you play a simple combination like C, D, E, F in a bunch of different positions. So starting at first, you can do it at third, fifth, seventh, ninth, and then experimenting with things like sliding up one string or campanellas like Colin came up with. Then we can apply that same idea to chords. Say A, C, and G on the third, second, and first string. First position, we have those. But knowing quickly the different possibilities of where that could be expressed, because it could be on fourth, third, and second string. Get a warmer sounds. Different fingers, because the tuning of the guitar will force you into a different fingering at that combination of strings and maybe in the context of the piece we need to do that all the way up here on five four and three and then maybe a harmonic you know um so many color possibilities and knowing where those things can lie across the instrument and recognizing that on the page can be really helpful towards sight reading guitar music which is polyphonic and we have you can't just pick out the one note you have to pick out five notes maybe. Yeah. Um, as you're just looking at the music and before you start to play, you want to think about where are all the possible places I could play that ACG combo um, and then look a couple notes before and a couple notes after and say, well, it'd be great if I could play it here, but can I get there? And 
maybe you can't and then you have to settle for the lower one and you know that'll inform what comes after it as well and so it's really just all of the all of the things that we have to think about when we learn a piece but distilled down to a quick getting through it once and it's not going to be perfect you know having that instinct of context and an, a real awareness of the entire fretboard and mm -hmm. range of possibilities. Right, the more times you've done that kind of thing, that kind of playing with right. exploring the neck, the more likely you are to feel comfortable with it the next time you come by it when you're reading and right. it's an emergency time. Right. you were just hearing? That is part of a three-movement work by Hans Haug, one of the new Segovia archive releases, titled Prelude, Tiento, et Toccata. And because I really want to have enough time for you to hear the entire recording of the Nocturnal, I'm sadly leaving that set out of this podcast. But I just wanted to mention that Colin's recording of those works is really wonderful, and also on that same CD, The Infinite Fabric of Dreams. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Audible.com, and for the listeners of All Strings, they are offering a free audiobook to check out their service. There's a fair amount of guitar-themed books there, for instance, the Jimi Hendrix biography, titled Roomful of Mirrors. To get your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. Okay, so Benjamin Britten's Nocturnal is a theme and variations sort of in reverse, the piece seems to evolve through its eight movements, culminating in Britain's transcription of the original song upon which it's based, Dowlin's Come Heavy Sleep. Each of the sections leading up to the Dowland relate to the song in some way, and each has a descriptive title. The first is marked musingly, then very agitated, restless, uneasy, march-like, dreaming, gently rocking, and finally Pasacalia. And then the Dowlin portion is marked slow and quiet. Yeah, so I've been playing the Britain Nocturnal since I was an undergrad at USC. It's a, a piece which hasn't really left my repertoire since. I play it on most of my recitals. No reason for it to leave, really. Right. Yeah, and I think there will be a time when I maybe Rest it. put it away for a couple of years and, uh -huh. and come back with, a, with fresh ears and fresh hands and a fresh mind and see what else I can extract from it. It's clearly one of the monuments of the 20th century guitar repertoire, one of the most important composers who wrote a piece for the guitar, and certainly a piece that's this substantial. We have other important composers that have written music for guitar, but not many that wrote 18-minute pieces. The only solo piece you've It is, yeah. yeah. There's um, two song cycles, one of original pieces and one volume of folk song arrangements that have guitar. And then also there's a little snippet from the opera Gloriana, which has, I believe, lute, but it's playable on guitar. Yeah, so it's, it's his only solo piece for guitar. He seems to do that sometimes, that you know, he wrote a solo oboe piece once, wrote a solo harp piece once. Julian Bream, Bream was yeah was the guy who you know and Bream's been having sort of a banner year. He's turning eighty. He just won the Gramophone Lifetime Achievement Award, and uh, his eightieth birthday lines up nicely with what would have been Britain's hundredth birthday this year and the fiftieth anniversary of this piece being written. Perfect time to be playing. It's great. Yeah, that was another reason that it stayed in my repertoire. As I knew twenty thirteen was going to be a good year for the Nocturnal. So. Uh. It takes a song by John Dowland as its basis, Come Heavy Sleep, and through a series of variations, fragments the Dowland. It's not just, well, here's the melody, and now I'm going to decorate it this way, and then I'll decorate it this way. He really deconstructs it and also takes the sort of theme of the piece and the, the lyrics, which are a pleading for death to bring relief to, to a pain's life. Sleep is... The metaphor is betrayed in the first line of the text, I believe. Come heavy sleep, the image of true death, and close up these my weary weeping eyes. 
Each movement sort of expresses a different state of insomnia, musingly, restless, uneasy. And finally, the last variation is this insistent passacaglia, with a descending bass line that repeats throughout the entire piece, never changing the notes that it stated on, it never modulates up or down. If you've heard some previous episodes, you've heard us talk about basso ostinato, or ground bass. That's that one coming back to haunt us again. many of his pieces, the dramatic high point would often be a Pasacaglia. We have it in Peter Grimes, we have it in a lot of his chamber works and a lot of his operas. In this case, it feels that there's this Ide fix that the imaginary protagonist of the piece who's trying to fall asleep, as it were, keeps trying a different thing to escape this fatalistic insistence of, and it's a falling bass line, it's clearly rooted in the tradition of lament basses. Right. Um, and so you do feel that dramatic pull of inevitable death around the corner. And the end of that Pasacaglia sort of explodes with the that bass line finally does change and appears on different notes in rapid succession. Um, it's inverted, so it goes up now and then immediately comes back down on a different pitch. And when it finally settles down, it goes back to that original pitch and range at the very bottom of the guitar's register. And then we hear Dowland's song, Unadulterated. And it's a very, um, after all this sort of dissonant intensity to hear this very pure Renaissance song is, is sort of a haunting and beautiful effect. And I believe it's meant to be played as quietly as possible. So the, the Dowlands that, as it appears at the end of, of Britain's piece is sort of Britain's transcription, because um, it's originally a lute and voice song. So Britain transcribed it down for solo guitar. And he does sort of abridge one repeat. It repeats back to sort of a B section in the song in Dallin's original and resolves as it should on E major. But in Britain's, he goes back to this bridge, which is on a very striking uh, G sharp major chord, which is then resolving into C sharp minor. It's all connected to E major eventually. But Britain goes back to that G sharp chord and sits on it and fades away on that. And you're left, there's there's some little little worm that that disrupts that. So before I leave you with Cullen's recording of Britain's Nocturnal, let me just say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. Hey, if you have a moment, please rate All Strings on iTunes, like the show on Facebook, or follow on Twitter at All Strings. It's been my pleasure to introduce you to Colin Davin. Just to reiterate, this piece is about 18 minutes long, so maybe do some attention span stretches, grab a beverage or a snack, sit back and enjoy one of the most important works written in the 20th century for the classical guitar.
Thank mm-hmm. you.